Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, this is BC Radio Live with Eric, Lisa, and Philip live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. Tonight on BC Radio Live, we're going to speak with Dr. John D. Clough, the author of the Cleveland Clinic Guide to Arthritis, and there's a very good chance I've mispronounced his name, so that's the first thing we'll ask him about. Uh, today is Wednesday, uh, what is it? It's Wednesday, March the 11th, 2009, and this is BC Radio Live. Uh, I am Philip Lynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and chief geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by BC Magazine's executive editor, Lisa McKay. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Philip. Fresh from dinner, I know. <laughs> yeah. And we are also joined by BC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson. Good evening, Eric. Philip, hello. Lisa, how are you? Hey, Eric. I'm full, too. I just, just ate. This is about the latest I've ever eaten and then run over. I I got here at about, uh, I mean, in the door at like 10 till, and I had to see what the cat's doing, and uh, it was... It was a tight one. We were watching the the Pixar shorts on Blu-ray. Oh, those are great. Those yeah, are they great are. Life. It was it was a lot of fun. I had only seen maybe half of them. I hadn't seen the earlier ones, which were really interesting. Now I know why they always use that lamp uh, as the <laughs> that's right as the Let's eye of Pixar. Yeah, that was their. Uh, well, that wasn't their first one. That was their first one that they. Well, the history is probably on the disc. I don't, I don't think that was the first one they did, but it was the first one they released publicly or something like that. Yeah, it was it was early. Uh, they they're in chronological order on the oh, okay. on the disc, so it was the second or third one. They, they were eighties. I, di- I didn't realize they were that far back. These were you know twenty one was eighty seven. You can and you could really see the evolution of the of the style because the early ones really do look relatively crude. So you know you can really see where they kicked in gear it, the the huge jump was leading up to toy story you could see right the difference know, between tin toy and toy story is mind-boggling yeah that exactly that is a amazing difference and that's kind of from then on then then it was in the style that that we're used to with the really really detailed you know almost lifelike but not quite animation so uh, anyway, yeah, that was really fun, and and uh, we were we were watching that, and and uh, prior to that, we watched the first Madagascar, which it, we didn't like that much um, the first time we saw it, but we all loved the second one. I think the second one's really great. It's much funnier, and it's more, it's a better story, and it's a lot more touching. And so the the first one was better uh, in in um, in reference to the second one, I think. But uh, the second one's definitely better. There aren't too many. I was trying to think how many sequels are, you know, really quite notably better than the yeah, first one. not a lot. Not, not a too lot. many. A lot of people like I... Toy Story 2 better than Toy Story 1. Okay, true story. As a 20-something-year-old man, I went to see Toy Story 2 on opening night at the... Uh, 10:30 p.m. showing with a bunch of other 20-something year old men. No, no, no kids anywhere in sight, and uh, <laughs> it was it was wonderful. It was a great experience, actually. The uh, the opening crawl, of course, is is outer space, Star Wars themed, and it was it was fantastic. 
It really so, uh, is. A, it is a great movie, and and I love the music in it. The oh, uh, yeah. the Sarah McLaughlin. The Sarah McLaughlin song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty touching <laughs> stuff. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that about Madagascar. I've been keeping my kids away from it uh, because I assumed it was it was well crap. But uh, if it's better than the first, I'll have to go out. It's and a lot better. It's kind of like they they took what was a somewhat broad theme, and and they really focused it. And and they're oh. returning. They they're they're re, they're returning to Africa, not on purpose, but they're they're actually in Africa. And the lion, Alex the lion. Of course, my son Alex likes that. Uh, meets his parents and. Uh, and, and there's a hilarious they have hilarious interaction with with well with a lot of people but there's a group of of uh, safari tourists from New York who turn out to of course know him from the know Alex from the zoo and uh, uh, and there's a lot more with the penguins who I think are just hysterical I love the penguins you know they have their own they're starting their own show on Nickelodeon they were so popular just the penguins from Madagascar that's what it's called the penguins from Madagascar. And uh, a lot of stuff. It's good. It's it's a lot better. It's it's it really is. Well, that's that's good news. I was really disappointed recently when uh, a, a brother for my for one of my kids the um, a DVD of Dragonheart, which it's just I, I just I think it's an underrated movie. Sean Connery at his finest doing voice acting. Um, and unfortunately, the the edition that he got uh, was Dragonheart, and then Dragonheart. A New Beginning or some, you know, Dragonheart 2. And, and of course, the entire theme of Dragonheart is that um, Sean Connery is the last dragon on the planet. So how you... And then he, he... I hope I'm not ruining it for anyone, but he dies at the end of the movie. And uh, so I'm, I'm really bummed out about the sequel. And I think it was right around that time that Madagascar 2 Escape from Africa or Escape to Africa or whatever it is came out and I just... Uh, I wasn't having it. <laughs> well, it's, anyway, it's good, and the lemurs are back, you know, with King Julian. It really—it's funny. It's—it's—it's it's, it's very well done, and the story's much better. It's tighter, tighter story, much more going on, more at stake. It's—it's kind of like Madagascar meets the Lion King, and you can probably figure it out from there. Huh. There's an evil, well, you know, evil uncle figure, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, while while we're doing media reviews. Um, Remind Watchmen came out since the last time we were uh, we spoke, right? Uh, that was March sixth. That was Friday. Yeah. So, have either of you seen the Watchmen? No, uh, I have not. I've Lisa, not. you were you were thinking about it. Did you go for it? I I, I have a feeling I'm not going to see it in the theater. We'll probably wait for it to come out on DVD. Yeah, I I uh, I still haven't decided how I actually feel about it. And I, I saw it opening night with an enthusiastic crowd, which probably probably caused me to like it better than I might otherwise would have. Um, but I just, uh, for me, both the movie is, is impossible to separate from the comic. Usually, I don't have a trouble separating books and movies as totally separate. I, you know, the Born Identity series from uh, Ludlum was one of my favorite, you know, trio of books. And then the Born Identity movies uh, became one of my favorite trios of movies. And the fact that the two have very little to do with each other, other than the first, say, ten minutes of the uh, of the, the six-hour uh, trilogy, it, it doesn't bother me at all. But in this case, I really I cannot 
think of one without the other. I can't think of the movie without the comics, and I and I'm not sure why that is. Except that you know he he tried so hard to make it like the comics. It was, it was pretty odd. So the other problem is that then both of them remind me of a part of my life I thought I'd left behind. The whole uh, paranoid libertarian phase that I went through as a teen. So <laughs> well, I've heard I've heard I heard of maybe three different reviews. All on the radio for some reason. Uh, I heard the NPR one, and then I heard a, a different NPR one, I think maybe on Terry Gross's show or something. Anyway, I've heard about three, and they all – and I've scanned several written ones, including you know our own, obviously. Right, and, yeah, and they all really say about the same thing. You know, uh, Their interpretation, whether they like it or not, is, is varies, <laughs> but – but they all Some, say they unfortunately haven't left the paranoid libertarian phase. Oh wait, <laughs> no, no. Simply that, like you said, that it's a really, really slavish is the word I've heard. You know, uh, a reproduction yeah. of the comic in film form, and they're not the same. You know, um, books and movies aren't, or comics and movies are not the same thing, and they have different strengths and different weaknesses. And I think you. I think with film you really do need to compress, you know. Uh I remember one the one review that sticks in my mind the most was saying, "Man, they were still doing backstory uh, you know, fill-in stuff 2 hours into the movie. You know, they hadn't set it well, up yet after 2 hours." Part of that, yeah, see part of that is I think the biggest difference and and this has just been rolling around in my head the last day or two. Um the beauty of a graphic novel is that when it's first being published, it's being published as individual comic books. And so the Watchmen was made as 12 individual comic books, which are now combined in one large graphic novel. Now, I usually don't read those things until they get published as, as full-length novels. But the interesting thing about that is then it's a restart 12 times. Each of the, graphic no- or each of the comics that makes up that, that graphic novel starts somewhere. It doesn't have to start pick up after the last frame left off. So you can have one issue explore one facet of something, another issue, you know, you, you can be, say, eight, nine, ten issues in and suddenly come up with an entirely different backstory because this character didn't, like, this wasn't important until this issue. Um, but the movie doesn't come in 12 parts, and so it's really weird when you try to do things in the same order because you, you jump back and forth too much. Well, I, spe- speaking of which, uh, where that has worked, I think, successfully, I think I told you guys we were watching Lost on DVD, and man, yep. we're blowing through it. We're we're more than halfway now through season three, so we're we're okay. going we're going quickly. We, this, we is the, this is what about. I consider this is what I consider the the bad season, season three. But go well, ahead. I, <laughs> I, what it's done is really broadened out the your perspective you know the first season it's pretty narrow you know it's kind of a a microscopic look at these people on at, at this one place on this island and what's going on with them and now you're broadening out to find out at least some some of, of you know how all this came to be and what does it mean and who are these other people and what what the hell is up with this freaky island and all this weird stuff going on here and all this kind of stuff so i i have so far anyway you know more than halfway found it very interesting, and I haven't I haven't felt that much of a of a of a letdown. But but what they do really well, and they've been doing it all along, uh, I think, is 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 to show you the same 
seen from someone else's perspective. And, right, and that can right. feel really trite, and that can feel pretty contrived, I think, and, and even be boring. It's like, yeah, I've seen it before. Okay, so what's someone else's point of view? But they really do get you inside of, you know, other people's heads and, and really show you that, that everything really is relative, uh, mm-hmm. at least in this world. And, and I think they've, uh, you know, they've done really, really a good job of that. So you're, you're backing up. You're seeing the same scene again. I mean, some of those scenes now we've seen you know, <laughs> 10 different they've perspectives, been, like the plane yeah, falling apart. Pretty deeply mined at this point. <laughs> yeah, really, you know, what, what could be left? God's point of view, I suppose, or something. Anyway, uh, they, I've, I've noticed that they do that well, where in a, in a, in a sense they're starting over again. And, and and of course the way they jump around it's a very postmodern kind of thing where they're jumping around in time all the time you know you, you kind of never wh- which version of now are you talking about are we talking about the now yeah. now or are we talking about the now you know uh, well, of the I, flashback within this season or are we talking about the you know they jump around so much it really really is mind so far stretching which is good you know I mean I haven't felt. I haven't felt lost on Lost yet. I could certainly, I've been on the edge. Uh, I, I could feel it coming at any moment, but they, they always seem to kind of haul you back in and, and throw you a, a lifeline and, and let you know what's going on. It's really interesting. When I when I do finally get caught up, I don't know if we're going to get caught up before this season is actually over. Uh, well, you know, who knows? But uh, I don't know if we're going to get to watch any of this season live. Of course, we still haven't seen any of it live. But, you know, by the time we do get caught up, we'll certainly be caught up by next year, which is uh, the final year. Uh, I, there's going to be, you know, I, I'm sure I'm, I know I'm saying nothing new, but, uh, you know, I think the series is really going to be considered a, a milestone in that uh, mm-hmm. in so many different uses of narrative and character and, as we said, just jumping around in time. And I don't recall ever a show anyway, maybe movies, but I don't really recall a TV show where where flashback, you know, was used, A, so often, but also so successfully. I mean, sometimes, often I'm thinking, you know, the flashback part was the most compelling part of that episode, you know. Yeah, yeah. I cared oh, more definitely. about what was going on in the flashback than what's going on in the quote-unquote here and now. Uh so well, anyway, the, the, the interesting thing is you're you're in season three. At the end of season three, things change a lot. So you only think they've changed up to now. The end of season three seems like the entire structure of the narrative changes, and season five is is just completely off the chain. So you've got a lot to look forward to. It'll be fun. Anyway, we should probably we 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 have our uh, guest tonight, so we should probably. End of the media criticism uh, or advocacy in our case. Uh, well, absolutely. I thought we were killing time, frankly. No, no I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, this is uh, this is BC Radio Live, live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash BC Radio, and co-hosting with Eric and Lisa, I'm Philip. Uh, our uh, guest tonight, actually, you know what? I'm just going to uh, I- I'm just going to ask, how do you pronounce your last name, Doctor? It's Clef, just like you said. All right, I said that. That was me. That was me. That was me. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I, I consulted with Eric before the show to find out what uh, what we thought we ought to go with, and and we we hit it right. So our, our first guest is Dr. John Decroft, and he is the author of Arthritis, a Cleveland Clinic Guide, and uh, quite obviously he's here to talk with us tonight. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
Are you in Cleveland? Are you at the clinic? I am at the clinic, and I am sitting in Cleveland right now. Because <laughs> I live in Aurora. All right. <laughs> we are neighbors. <laughs> Could be. I know the, I was, I know I the clinic, thinking, know the clinic very book, well. I was just thinking how my book could have come out as a, as a uh, graphic novel. <laughs> that would have been interesting, yeah. The original title of it was, uh, What's a Joint Like This Doing in a Girl Like You? <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. Very nice. But cooler, that would have been, cooler heads that would have prevailed. Been <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that's what I thought, too. <laughs> that, that is classic. Yeah, that's, that's a graphic novel title, that's for sure. That's right. <laughs> All right, so why don't you tell us uh, briefly about the, uh, the book overall, and then we can dig in in detail. Well, you know, when you're taking care of patients with any chronic disease, and particularly arthritis, the... Um, best ally that you can have is an educated, uh, motivated, uh, and vigilant patient. And uh, for the patient to um, have that vigilance needs to know what he's looking for. And the purpose of this book is to provide a level of education about these diseases that enables patients to be that way. And uh, it does it in terms that people can understand and uh, even hopefully a little bit entertaining in the process, although it's not a very entertaining subject. Uh, so that's what the book is. That's what the purpose of the book is. How successful it is, I guess time will tell. So the idea is, if you've got, you know, arthritis of any kind, rheumatoid arthritis, osteo, gout, uh, reactive, psoriatic, et cetera, et cetera. Goodness, there's a long list. <laughs> uh, then this is this that's is the book you want to have. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are uh, looks like at least 11, no, 12, no, 13 different types uh, that, that get their own chapter. <laughs> so, that's right. Uh, there, that's, there, that's actually, awesome. there are actually at least 100 different diseases that have arthritis as a feature. And, wow. Uh, so what's in that book is the 10 or so most common types plus a couple of conditions that are often mistaken for arthritis. Uh, okay. Fibromyalgia is one of them. Polymyalgia rheumatica is another. Uh, and these are all uh, conditions that uh, the general internist sees. Uh, the primary care physician is the one who has to pick these up and, and uh, decide, you know, how they're going to be managed. Are they going to be managed by that person or by an, a rheumatologist, which is what I am? Uh, and, uh, and it's not always that uh, clear-cut. Uh, of a choice, uh, the ones that should that could be managed by primary care physicians certainly should be. What binds all these together as arthritis? What is the essence of arthritis? Arthritis is a symptom, and uh, all that's all it is. It's not a disease, uh, but it's a symptom of many different diseases. And what arthritis means is inflammation in one or more joints, not pain in a joint, uh, but inflammation. That, the definition of inflammation is warmth, swelling, tenderness, um, and uh, deformity. Well, my poor mother, who is now uh, 76, I guess, um, she has pretty bad arthritis. And she's, she tried ignoring it for a long time. Bad mother, bad mother. Um, she's finally getting what appears to be you know, fairly effective treatment. Uh, but as they're getting into it, it's 
they're finding a, a like kind of like you're saying a variety of things. She has different issues with her knees, uh, both of her knees. Uh, so it's you know it's very painful. It's hard to uh, when when it's bad. It's hard to watch her try to hobble around. It's very depressing. This is my mother, young, vibrant woman. Oh no, she's 76 now. Uh, well, 76 sounds pretty young to me. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound old to me anymore. I'll tell you that much, because you know I'm 50. So, yeah. Um, it, but, but then she's got terrible problems with her shoulders. Now it turns out that's not arthritis. It's, she's had a, a I guess, a, a deterioration of the. Uh, uh, well, it, it, she's ending up with the. They're saying it would be uh, sort of like Tommy John surgery, I guess, for mm. uh, both rotator cuffs. I guess is what it is. Could but anyway, it's her knees are definitely be, arthritis. Could be bursitis, could be uh, something uh, radiating from the neck. Um, there's a lot of different possibilities. Um, but uh, osteoarthritis of the knees is, is quite a common condition. And uh, fortunately, uh, in this day and age, uh, it's, it's very treatable surgically. Um, and uh, sometimes one can do some simple procedure like a resurfacing procedure or sometimes a total joint replacement is, is what's indicated. And, uh, but those surgeries are now well worked out. Back when I first started out in rheumatology, they weren't. And uh, uh, you, sent, you went to an orthopedic surgeon at your peril. But uh, these days, um, the results are very good. These guys know how to take care of these uh, conditions, and uh, they are very successful. And age is generally not a limiting factor. Uh, I don't know if you'd want to do it in a 98-year-old, but uh, certainly a 70-year-old is, uh, uh, you know, quite a common event. Yeah, I think she's finally resigned herself that it, it is ultimately going to come down to surgery. They've been trying, uh, they've been trying the cortisone injections, and then some other thing. I guess there's a new injection. She, she didn't tell me what it was, but she made a big issue of it. It's three thousand dollars a shot. And uh, you know how can it, how can my knee be worth that? And doing all the martyr stuff that you know women, especially of her generation, tend to do. But uh, it, yeah, we really want her to do whatever it takes because she really is quite healthy in every other way. She's very. There's, there's no need for her to be uh, for her to be disabled by this. In fact, when she has it done, she'll probably wonder why she didn't do it long before. That's exactly what we're all thinking. Absolutely, you know, it's like God. What you know? Why did I put this off? See, they have a couple friends who've had the full knee replacement, and one of them's actually had quite a bit of trouble with it. And we keep saying, you know, look, you know, nothing's perfect. Things happen. You know, everyone's different. Recovery times are different. It's still fairly recent, though. Um, the one who's had the trouble. So you know, that was her excuse for a while. Oh, you know, Shirley's had all these problems. Anyway, it's um, she. She really does. After a lot of uh, digressions and dissembling and uh, <laughs> avoidance, and well, I can't. They travel a lot, so that's her excuse. They're gone, you know, like a third of the time. Uh, and uh, well, I can't do it before I'm leaving, and I can't do it while I'm gone, and I can't do it when I come back. Well, the the reason to to do it uh, sooner rather than later, aside from the fact that it just saves you. Um, years of misery uh, that, you, that you don't really have to go through is that uh, as you have had or if you have arthritis for a while, it tends to limit your mobility and your movement, 
and uh, the muscles that move those painful joints uh, atrophy. And then uh, once you do eventually get around to having it done, um, you have a very long rehabilitation period afterwards trying to get your muscles working again. Well, so, that sentence, that, that paragraph you just said, that is my ammo. So thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to whip that on her. I'm going to call Open her tomorrow. <laughs> They're up in Sonoma. They're drinking wine in Sonoma. I'm going to call her tomorrow. So no, wine is good. <laughs> they don't now, mind wine. <laughs> nothing wrong in, with in, that. <laughs> in your book, you list that uh, more than 25 million people in the U.S. alone have arthritis, including, like you mentioned, osteoarthritis of the knees being pretty common. Uh, more than 21 million people have that's, osteoarthritis. That's, have osteoarthritis. That's amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess take, I, guess I hear about it. If you take all kinds of arthritis, it's more like 46 million. That's wow. more than 10%. It's more like 15%. It's close to 20%. Yeah. And yeah. Then, this is not uncommon stuff we're talking about. And... Uh, you know, even though there are 100 different types of arthritis, 95% uh, uh, of them are one of these 10 types that are listed in the book. And um, uh, so you got a pretty good shot at finding something in there uh, that can tell you what's wrong if you do have a painful swollen joint. So what are some of the key things that people can look for, and then, you know, wh what should they do from there? Well, um the first thing is to get a correct diagnosis, and uh, a, a good physician can generally do that just by looking uh, at the person and talking to them. Um, if, um, for example, if it's only a single joint that's inflamed, and particularly if it's in the foot, you think of gout. Um, if it's uh, a symmetrical kind of involvement of, of the small joints of the hands and wrists, uh, on both sides of the body, then uh, rheumatoid arthritis is uh, a good shot. If it's an elderly person um, and the knees are involved, so on, osteoarthritis would be the most likely thing. But there are obviously some other kinds of arthritis as well. And uh, so once, once you kind of narrow the, the field down a little bit, then there's some testing that you can do that sometimes helps you sort this out. And uh, x-rays also are helpful mainly in the sense not so much of making the diagnosis but uh, telling you whether there's damage being done. Uh, some forms of arthritis don't do much damage, but they're very painful, like gout, for example. Uh, gout is about uh, one of the most painful conditions there is outside of a kidney stone. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't really do much damage unless it's neglected and uh, a person has repeated attacks that aren't adequately treated. So once, once you make the diagnosis, then you look and see which treatments are available for it. So we mentioned uh, with, with uh, osteoarthritis that there are good surgical treatments for the weight-bearing joints. Uh, medical treatments are not as um, excellent, I don't think, but there, there are some available. And that falls mostly into the category of physical therapy and uh, exercise and uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications like uh, Motrin and so on. Um, yeah, I, I just have to interject here. Your chapter on gout, I, I love the subtitle. Uh, it, it says, Onset, the pitchfork from hell. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> It goes on to describe one man's experience with gout. That's just greatly amusing. I mean, I guess since I'm not experiencing it. <laughs> Incidentally, the uh, the uh, descriptions in there are real patients. Their names have been changed to protect the guilty, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, they are real patients. And uh, uh, in some cases, uh, I've combined two patients together to get the one that's in there. <laughs> but... Uh, um, that's the way these diseases act and present. I did honestly didn't even know that gout was still an, an active, you know, issue. I know you had the sort of the romantic picture of it from uh, from the uh, I guess what Renaissance on, where it was the the rich man's disease. Because and and I never quite understood something about the richness of the diet. Is that what it was? Well, the, it's probably the only form of arthritis that has much of a uh, direct connection with uh, diet in some people. Um, and it's not the richness of the diet so much as it is uh, what the chemical content of the diet is. So if you eat uh, foods that are high in purine, and uh, there aren't uh, some things like uh, liver, for example, uh, some uh, seafoods, um, and then some other things that most people don't eat, I think, brains and sweetbreads and so on. Those things uh, can all lead to attacks of gout in somebody who's so inclined because they are high in purine, and the breakdown product of purine in the body is uric acid. And uh, uric acid is not a very soluble material and tends to crystallize out when the concentration gets too high. And if it does that inside of a joint, then you get an attack of gout. Ooh, boy, that does sound painful. Yeah, that's uh, not a nice, uh, not a nice feeling at all. The, the The good news about gout is, though, that once you make the diagnosis, um, you can almost always control it completely uh, with medication and diet. Interesting. Now, making the diagnosis, uh, as as the chapter in the book talks about, uh, can be a little bit onerous because. Uh, generally, what you have to do is stick a needle in the joint and get some fluid out, look at it under the microscope, and see the crystals. Because there are several different kinds of crystal uh, joint disease. And uh, gout is one, pseudogout is another, hydroxyapatite is another. So there, there are more than one way this can happen to you, and the treatments are different for each of these. God, I'd be so depressed if I had pseudo gout. You don't even have real gout, man. You got <laughs> fake gout. What you'd rather have is crypto gout, so that you didn't know it. But uh, one thing about gout is it's not shy. You know it if you've got it. <laughs> so, Lisa, do you have uh, any arthritis in in the family, or or w with you? Is that something you've had to deal with at all? I feel rusty at my age, so I suspect there's probably something going on. But actually. Uh, my mother-in-law, who is um, almost 85, uh, has had a knee replaced. How and has that gone? Um, how did, how her, did she do? She actually did very poorly. Um, poorly? Here well, I'm telling you, you get a great result, and both of you know people who had <laughs> poor results. She, <laughs> Maybe they didn't come to the Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> we, we've been lying in wait for you. She yeah. ended up... Uh, <laughs> She actually ended up with a very serious infection in the replacement, mm. and oh, that's, had to that's have, terrible. Yeah, she had to have the replacement uh, removed, 
and um, was actually laid up in a nursing facility for a couple of weeks while while they waited for the infection to clear up so that they could put yet another uh, replacement joint in. So um, while she has had a very a very bad experience, her sister-in-law, who is about the same age, um, has had both of her son and has had a very good experience. So I, I think you know we we definitely realize that these things are are variable from you know from person to person, and I probably know a few other people that have had knees and hips done who have really done well. And and I have. You know, it brings up a good point though, and and uh, um, that there are things that can go wrong with any of these things, and and the treatments is they get more powerful and more potent uh, and more effective tend to have more and more side effects. And that's one reason the patient needs to be able to watch for some of these things so that, uh, uh, you know, he's not just uh, in the dark about what could possibly happen from some of these medications that are, you know, so great for, for some people, for many people, but uh, backfire on a few people. Well, I'm very glad to hear you say that that you value, you know, an engaged and a and a educated and aware um, patient because even in this day and age, I mean, most doctors who I come in contact with feel just that way. Uh, but I mean, every now and then, you'll I'll still come across a doctor who who feels threatened by that. It just amazes me, you know. Um, I mean, sure, maybe it's a little inconvenient to be asked, you know, more questions or to or, or to have some some you know proposed uh, course of action question. Uh, you know, may, maybe that's an issue. But uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that it, that the negatives would outweigh the positives. And I'm I'm really glad, you know, to hear that that's how you feel. I, I've always felt the more I knew about you know uh, what was going on with myself or someone close to me the the better off i was and the better off they were and the more i was able to offer suggestions and to you know bring in what might not necessarily be obvious connections but just you know to toss those things out there and sometimes you know it's right sometimes there is a connection that way are That's you finding right. that and, i guess I, my question after yeah. after all this is uh, do you find that your perspective has become the norm, uh, you know, but uh, or or not? Well, if it isn't, it should be. And I, I think that if if I were to run across a physician who didn't um, want uh, some uh, collaboration with the patient, I'd go find another physician because uh, um, I think most people now realize that uh, uh, the patient winds up being the one that has the greatest connection with what's going on and can can be the source of a lot of information and you know the, the interesting thing is since the uh since the web came online <laughs> about uh I don't know what 13 14 years ago now um people have become very skilled in going through that and finding a lot of information it's not all correct um but uh, the, that's maybe the role of the physician is to help sort through some of that stuff but there's a lot of stuff on the web, and you can uh, learn a lot by uh, by looking at it. One of the things that uh, that, that I recognize in this book is that uh, when you write a book, uh, as soon as you print it, it starts to go out of date. And uh, in order to uh, keep people 
uh, informed of new developments, I started a blog on Amazon where you can go look and see, you know, uh, uh, whatever parts of the book are being updated at the time. Eventually, so if, I, if you if you go to Amazon and search for uh, Arthritis Cleveland Clinic, for example, to, to find this book, the Arthritis uh, Cleveland Clinic Guide, uh, and then scroll down, you actually see uh, John D. Clough's, uh blog. Yeah. Uh, so the, the recent posts are actually associated with the book as well, and you've got things on gout, biological approaches to rheumatoid arthritis, healthcare reform. There, there's actually quite a lot of really good stuff in here. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the the best way to use this book because it is with something like that because after it's a year or two old, there'll be a lot of things in it that are um, either out of date or passe, and I don't know how often uh, the publisher wants to you know update this, but uh, the blog is there, and uh, <laughs> when we update it, probably that's where we get most of the information that goes in the update. You know, if if the publisher ever does decide to release another edition, maybe you can. Uh you can push for a, a reinstatement of of the original title, What the Joint Like You. <laughs> Believe, it <or> not, <laughs> Believe it or not, this is the second this is the second uh, edition of this. And uh, oh, this one, the first one was printed by uh, the Cleveland Clinic Press. Okay. And, uh, the Cleveland Clinic Press ran into unfortunate uh, economic problems and was closed down. So we sold the assets to Kaplan Publishing. And uh, that's that's uh, what you're seeing there. So this is an updated version of the first one, which was called Arthritis at Cleveland Clinic Guide instead of the Cleveland Clinic Guide to Arthritis. But the gotcha. original title of that was going to be uh, the title that I mentioned before, <laughs> was the <laughs> like doing yeah. a girl like you. And uh, uh, I uh, I received so much negative feedback from that that I uh, I made it more dignified. <laughs> that you moved that you moved to a cave. Huh? You moved yeah. to a cave. <laughs> yeah, I kept. I did keep that that as a title of one of the chapters, though. Oh, that's at least good. So it's in there. <laughs> well, the Cleveland Clinic, as as anyone who who is in this area, anyone in Northeast Ohio knows. I mean, it's such a monolith. You know, they're taking over downtown, and uh, it, it's it's an amazing thing. I, I mean, it does seem to be uh, benign and benevolent, and man, you can't beat the the reputations. I mean, people. When people think about what are the really first-rate, first-class, high-end things about Cleveland, the Cleveland Clinic, which is always ranked, you know, at or near the very top uh, in the nation, uh, and uh, and the Cleveland Orchestra, which is similarly, you know, pretty good company. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I, I, I always think about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Nothing else. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's a, new, that's a newer addition. That was kind of grafted on, actually. I think the well, Cleveland as, the, uh, as the book cover says, in fact, uh, before anything else, from one of America's best hospitals, according to U.S. News and World Report. Oh, it's always ranked. You know, they do various rankings, but for for the different departments and this and that, and uh, they do it every year, don't they? U.S. News, don't they do a ranking? Yeah, they do it in July every year. And Cleveland Clinic is often what? It's number one sometimes, isn't it? Well, for uh, for heart, it's been number one for the last thirteen or fourteen years. Right, and that's and, where my my here's my dad's uh, heart attack slash Cleveland Clinic story. He was a, almost just classic stereotype executive, late fifties. He worked for TRW. He was a uh, 
He was the HR uh, vice president at TRW. He, he uh, ate too much rich food. He didn't get enough medicine. He was stressed. I, I don't mean medicine. I mean exercise. Oh, I said medicine. Uh, didn't get enough exercise. He was really stressed. He worked long hours. He had to travel a fair amount. It was just, you know, all the classic things. He didn't drink a whole lot, and he never smoked, so he had that going for him. But kind of every other negative, uh, you know, was there. And he was he was at a company uh, a dinner meeting of some sort, again, you know, <laughs> working long hours, uh, and, uh, and he had the heart attack. He was only, I think he was 59, maybe 50 or 59, and... Uh, fortunately, he was right near the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, he was like minutes away, and they got him there. You know, instantly he had the absolutely best possible care. It was it was one of these, you know, sort of stereotype stories where everything went about as well as it could, and you know he came out of it very well. He's had it controlled and managed ever since. He's been under the care of the Cleveland Clinic ever since and uh, has never had another heart attack, gets very regular checkups, has been able to, you know, cut his uh, cholesterol way down, and he's exercised more, eats. That was the other thing was diet. Uh, he had way too much salt in his diet and several other things they mentioned. And, uh, you know, he changed that drastically. He's been a very good patient. I, I wouldn't say he exercises as much as he should, but I'm fanatical. So uh, in comparison to me, you know, most people uh, – <laughs> But I'll bet your dad knows what uh, what signs to look for if something goes wrong, and uh, and that's that's again the value of the educated patient. Um, you don't necessarily have to see your doctor every week, but uh, if you know what to watch for, you can you can uh, sort of be alert to uh, things that might be significant. Well, I think that's uh, good advice to wrap up on. The book, again, is The Cleveland Clinic Guide to Arthritis. It has one of those nice long subtitles, Everything You Need to Know About the Many Forms of Arthritis from a Renowned Rheumatology Expert, and uh, that's Dr. John D. Clough. Uh, are you head of rheumatology at Cleveland Clinic? I was, but I'm retired now. Oh, very nice. <laughs> that That's even nicer. So, uh the book is available. It's available on Amazon right now. You can also find their uh, Dr. Clough's blog updating you on things that have happened uh, since the publication of the book. And uh, thank you very much for spending time with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Well, I guess that, uh, that pretty much brings us to the end of another show, unless, uh, unless either of you two have any uh, pressing, pressing news to share with the world. Well, no, we uh, we chatted a bit, you know, quite a bit actually at the beginning. <laughs> Very good. We got we got that out of the way, and uh, yeah, that was really interesting stuff. Like I said, it really very much applies to my mother, and I, I really am going to take that bit of uh, advice about the you know the muscles deteriorating because that's exactly what's happened to her shoulders. Um, you know, yeah. is, is the mus the muscle atrophying. So she certainly doesn't want that to happen to her knees, or she literally won't be able to walk. So um, right. that was extremely helpful. Very good. Well, we've reached the end of the show for this week. Please do join us again next week when we will have more guests talking about different things. I don't actually know who they are yet, but we'll find out. Uh, and thanks again to uh, Dr. John D. Clough, and uh, also, of course, to Eric and Lisa for co-hosting. And uh, I'm Philip Wynn. This has been BC Radio Live. We do broadcast live every Wednesday night. 
So be sure to visit us and listen. Uh, or if you do miss the live broadcast, then audio archives are available online. You can play or download any episode of the show going back over a year now. Uh, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each and every week automatically. Until next week, aloha.